Hello, and welcome to Office Hours. If you're finding us on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. There you can sign up and become one of the producers of the show. You can submit the questions that determine the direction that we head into, into our show. Uh, we are here to answer your uh, questions on media and virtual production, uh, as well as education. We have our education crew with us on Saturday. Usually we uh, spend our second hours on a, on a topic of focus. Today we're going to be talking about uh, burnout and mindfulness, and we have a guest, Allison Sharko. So we're looking forward to that. TJ, what are our questions? Uh, thanks, Josh. Our first question this morning is from James Babbitt from San Diego. James asks, has anyone used the new Zoom feature mentioned by Andy Carluccio, creating breakout rooms from poll results? Each breakout room is filled with the participants who give the same answer. I don't think any of us have gotten a chance to um, see this feature yet. I did hear about it, though, and was exciting. The, um, the potential seems to be pretty obvious. Um, you could have self-sorting uh, people in, in the chat uh, just by having people uh, select what, what breakout channel they're going to go into. Um, another, another potential um, interest, well, just that. So having people have certain uh, areas of interest, they could also uh, you know, self-select. Um, TJ? I was kind of thinking this might be an interesting um, thing for like educators if they were um, working on a remote class and then it's like, oh, let's get everybody who likes the color green into a room or everyone who likes the color blue into a room and kind of, you know, have a little fun with that and maybe um, discuss and, and, you know, maybe for like the younger kids who are doing uh, remote classes. I thought that might be kind of a fun thing. Keely? Sorry, problems with buttons. Uh, I, just because there haven't been many answers on this, I'm going to take this in a bit of a different direction because, hey, have you heard about Discord? So one of the features that you can use in Discord is, is reaction roles, and those are embedded in a number of bots. And so the concept of using reactions of people to then accord them roles, which then allow them access to what you could call breakout rooms, but in Discord, they would be a voice channel and they would automatically be allowed access into that area and be able to go there and participate in a, in a different activity. And then that could be time sensitive so that it ends and then that voice channel can be removed or repurposed or things like that. It's it's something that I haven't done much of because much many of my activities are quite focused, but I see the possibility in taking this concept and porting it to other platforms. But I'm sure that once we get to the point where uh, we're experimenting with it here in OH, it'd be really fun to see what we can do with it. Thank you, Keely. I know you've been helping out with um, some of our Discord uh, progress here and uh, in office hours as well. And are most of the uh, <laughs> are most of the uh, bots that are able to have that capability? Are those mostly premium uh, bots, or can that uh, feature be had uh, by um, by any of the free bots that are available? Mostly premium bots. So you'll find that that's one of those. Uh, one of those features that you need a little bit more permissions and a little bit more seriousness and things like that. So I think it's just a nice balance, even though it's nice to say everything's free when you're giving people permissions and really moving people around. Those are very business centric activities. And I would expect as a business owner to pay for that value, but that's just me. I, I believe in paying for things that are worth it. Absolutely. Very powerful. Uh, go ahead, Eric. 
Man, I really wish we had this in Google Meet when I was teaching remotely because during recess time, I know I've shared a similar story, but my students would come on during lunch or what they would typically be their recess if they were in person. And I would say, do you want to go to the the anime room or do you want to go to the drawing room? And then I would physically have to move them, but it would be a lot easier if um, the poll results would just send them there. So I really do hope this goes across all platforms. We're living in the future. Let's go to our next question. Paul Valhus from Cedar Creek, Texas asks, I'm still searching for a great OCR program that will translate handwritten printing with a pencil. Yeah, John. So my recommendation, if it's, I'm not sure, Paul, if you're saying with an Apple pencil or with like just a, a pencil pencil. So OCR is optical character recognition. And generally it's taking a scan document of some sort and converting those lines into recognizable text. PDF pen is a good affordable application that can do that really strongly. Um, the problem with OCR is you'll always lose formatting when you do that. If you're talking about using an Apple Pencil to take notes and translating that into text, all iPads have a built-in service called Scribble, uh, and I would just use the Notes app for that. Go ahead, Dave. Well, that's a good recommendation, actually. For years and years, I used uh, Acrobat Pro to take documents and OCR them because it had the best OCR. And it's improved even over the decades I've used it. And that just takes an image of the document. So you have to photograph or take a scan of the image. Uh, the same features now in Notes in all Macs uh, with the modern systems, uh, Ventura, and into all the iOS apps that you can use your iPad or your iPhone to take a document image and uh, it frames it up and does the keystoning on it and make sure that all the formatting stays the same. And those can be scanned for use as PDFs, but as well, there's an option in the camera button to do it as text. So you can scan as text, any uh, handwritten or typewritten document, and it'll turn it into the text that you have. I always recommend people edit and double check the sentences and the wording because I've had little character changes where it didn't understand what an at sign was and it gave me the letter A. So you got to watch for those things. Uh, the other one that I began to use when I was in iOS for the first while was uh, Scanner Pro from Riatl. They're a Ukrainian software company. So if you want to support Ukraine, you can do that too. But uh, Riatl have this Scanner Pro that was the first to do the image correction stuff. And the sharpening on it was really terrific for, uh, I did it for contracts and signatures on official documents. So uh, I still use Scanner Pro occasionally, but now that Notes does just as good a job, I found that Notes will do business cards and everything else a little better than Scanner Pro. And uh, Notes, of course, is, is free. Uh, uh, Scanner Pro is not. And of course, Acrobat is fairly expensive. But in all three of those, I've been able to do OCR for a lot of documents. And uh, I noticed in my iOS version of Notes that because I use Scribble, as was mentioned before, it actually understands my handwriting. So it actually adapts to what I scribble, and then it'll correct OCR is more accurate because it understands my scribbles. If I put my wife's scribbles on there, it doesn't understand just as well. Go ahead, TJ. Uh, following on on the other recommendations, if you have an iPad and an Apple Pencil, I use a software called Notepad. Been using it for about ten years or so, um, and it's been it does soft or handwriting recognition, and it can translate my garbage handwriting into actual letters. Fantastic. Well, as we mentioned, um, 
is a great time to get your questions in and also vote on them. Uh, the voting is important. Uh, this uh, this uh, really gives us the importance of what we cover and how deeply. So feel free to take advantage of the fantastic knowledge that we have of, of our uh, collected panel today. We have all types of different disciplines. Of course, on Saturday, we also have the advantage of being able to take advantage of the knowledge of our educators. So general education questions are fine for our first hour. Let's go to our next question, TJ. Scott Mueller from Germantown, New York is up next. And Scott says, just dipping my toes into the world of SDVOE, how does what we do with Zoom production in a mostly insular Blackmagic design ecosystem interface with an SDVOE infrastructure? And SDVOE stands for Software Defined Video over Ethernet. Okay, thanks for that tidbit, TJ. Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, in our world, I don't think that uh, we'd be using this protocol much at all because it's it's hardware and it's expensive. which are about 1700 bucks a wax so you're already up to 3000 bucks uh, plus your switch and that switch is most likely going to be one of the net gear 10 gig switches which the other day i showed mine where uh, i went into that um, uh, uh, area where you can actually define each port and sdvoe is on these net gear av lines there it's one of the protocols so you set up the path and in our world we don't need 444 color or uh, low latency. So that's what SDVOE provides is this low latency and high color. So for our world where we're doing uh, Zoom and Blackmagic, uh, it, it's a cheaper way of doing things. If you wanted to run, let's say, a projector or a video wall behind somebody where you wanted fast response and the highest caliber of color, that's what this is for, for install base. So I don't see it really as a protocol that we'd use. I think more of us are fans of of uh, NDI and dealing with just a few frames of latency rather than trying to get zero latency at, at a high price. And this is also great for corporations where there's a lot of traffic going around and infrastructure. And so this is a way of, of um, keeping video on its own VLAN and segmenting things out so they're not colliding into each other and causing users on the network uh, really slow transfer speeds because we're hogging up a bunch of it with uh, up to 8K. So that is one of the cool things about it is 8K. So again, uh, high resolution, low latency. There's, there's not the stuff that we're doing. We're not doing 8K. We're not doing 444. We're in, so it's it's unnecessary. So you could dip your toes and drop five grand if you want, but you could do the same thing with, with uh, less expensive options. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida asks, has there been an office hours about the best use and pra best practices for mid-journey and similar AI graphic generation tools? All right. Uh, let's get uh, John Preda's uh, take on this. Go ahead, John. Oh, I mean, maybe we can take uh, John Snyder's. All right. Yeah, we had a mid-journey specific office hours on December 27th. I'll put the link in the chat. And I'm looking forward to Tuesday has a mid-journey for Keynote coming up. Fantastic. John, did you have a comment? Yeah, John said it all. My, I just came back from the restroom, so I wasn't out there. So. <laughs> no worries. Okay, let's get our next question. All right, Jason Robertshaw from Sarasota, Florida is up next. Uh, Jason asks, are there inexpensive turnkey graphics packages for quickly making weather reports for student news programs? Good, Mitchell. You can certainly roll your own with uh, programs like SPX and Here to Record, but 
Um, I'd recommend it if you just need a template that you like that needs to be uh, populated with data. Uh, New Blue has a whole bunch of things. They have an application. Uh, they have templates. Uh, it's a pretty healthy uh, ecosystem if you need to go there. I think it's newblue.com. But um, it's, a good, uh, it's a good place to go, and the stuff looks good. Go ahead, Guy. One more to take a look at is uh, Flowix. I haven't checked the pricing exactly to see how much it is, but these guys are in some other software that I've been looking at. Cre the software is Create um, by, uh, who's Create by? I can't remember the, the name, but they, they have this as Flowix as the plugin, which is by VizRT. So yeah, take a look and see if that's, uh, you know, it's kind of scary when they say, uh, call for pricing or, you know, uh, reach out to us, chat with us for pricing. Let's ready to, to lead the audience participation, remote graphics production. Let's chat. So, but yeah, take a look at Flowix. That's what the big guys are using. I guess if you're in that group, you'll know. Go ahead, Keely. Yeah, one option if the weather reports are being delivered by stream, I'm not really quite sure what the context is, but you could look at something like overlays.uno. This is a package that is super, super easy to use, and it's got a variety of templates already in the library that allow you to do things like tickers and uh, sports graphics store scores and, and things like that, and weather reports are in here. Here we go. There's weather bug glide and titled formats and things like that. So if this is a if this is a streaming production that can bring in the overlays via a web widget, then this could be a nice solution. Next question. Paul Valhus from Cedar Creek, Texas is up next. Can you make a Mac act and look like a PC and vice versa? John, can you help us out? I'm sure a lot of people would say, why would you ever want to do that? But then you have to use the PC at work like I do and you decide actually it kind of helps. Two things I would recommend is you can remap your keyboard shortcuts through system settings, and that will help uh, with some of that memory problems. Secondly, you can download an application called UBAR, which will create like a start menu in your bottom part of your screen, just like a Windows PC has. Go ahead, Dave. Well, I've actually used Parallels for years, and I've used it in corporate environments and government environments where my laptop, my Macintosh, Mac Pro uh, would be on the desk and it would have Windows on it. Uh, I could also mount Linux in there as well. And you can actually switch between each of the platforms in live. You can go from one to the other just without restarting your machine. Um, it's uh, friendly to networks. It's friendly to disk drives and, and other peripherals and printers. It finds things on the network just as it does as a, as a Macintosh. And Parallels is uh, now owned by Microsoft, so it's got great support for handling things in the Windows environment and having the latest updates. Um, I haven't turned a PC into a Mac, and I think it's because there's chips in the Mac that allow it to boot the operating system, the uh, Mac OS. So it's really difficult to hack the Mac OS into a PC. But I've heard that some people have made uh, Mac Hackintoshes that, that run like a, like a Mac on a PC, but I've never tried it. So that's been my experience. I think Parallels is still offered. I think it used to be about $50 a year, but uh, I haven't used it in a while because I've stopped working in the government area. TJ, how's your Mac makeover coming? So I use a Mac and a PC all day, every day, both simultaneously in essence. And the thing that 
coming from, I, I admit I was a PC guy way back from the 8088 days and um, the text editing commands to move the cursor around are so alien to me on a Mac still to this day that um, I prefer, you know, hitting home moves the cursor to the beginning of the line, not moving the document to the top of the page. Um, you know, control end moves the cursor to the end of the line. And um, so that's a that was a huge uh, hurdle for me to kind of get over when I'm editing on the Mac or editing on the PC. Now, like John said, you can remap your keys that do that kind of thing. So if you want um, home to behave like you're used to it on the Windows machine, then you can do that. I chose not to do that because I wanted to be able to go from my Mac to somebody else's Mac and not be stuck and not know what to do and not how to be able to manipulate. So when I'm in Mac mode, it does take a bit of time to get my brain into, okay, I'm editing on the Mac side of things now and I got to use Command V instead of Control V and Home and End and you know Control Up Arrow or Command Up Arrow, Command Down Arrow to handle things differently. So if you can stick it out, I would recommend trying to, but if not, you can remap the keys. Go ahead, Mitchell. I'm with, uh, with Dave uh, mentioning Hackintosh. It was a great sport while it lasted. Uh, here's the problem with uh, turning a PC into a Mac. It is possible. You can do it. Uh, but as soon as uh, an update is uh, done by Apple, it, it usually fails. Uh, because Apple is uh, actively keeping that from happening. But it was a fun practice. Uh, you know, it's interesting to point out why I did it, uh, just as an experiment, is I had a very expensive at the time NVIDIA card in my uh, Apple, and all of a sudden, when I went to Cupertino, it just stopped working. And, uh, you know, the uh, ultimate, uh, you know, uh, information that I found out was that Apple said, well, we're not going to work with NVIDIA today. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so... Uh, that's why I tried the Hackintosh because it would work with it, but it relied entirely on people posting uh, BIOS and uh, driver updates and things like that that would allow that to happen. So it's, again, a sport, not necessarily a plan. Yeah, and a, a couple other things you might try. Uh, TJ mentioned a little bit about the keyboard mapping. I have a Logitech a keyboard that is uh, helpful. It accommodates both uh, the Mac and the w Windows mapping. So you can have some of the custom software in Logitech to go ahead and map some of those out. And uh, sometimes you'll see something a little strange, like uh, maybe vMix running in a window on a screenshot with the little traffic lights at the top. That's because um, a lot of times people are using remote controls off their Mac to control another PC. And so essentially they get the same functionality out of it. Uh, TJ, do you have more to add? Yeah, I just wanted to give a shout out to Microsoft and the remote desktop solution that they have for Mac when you want to remote control a PC. It is absolutely brilliant. It is, in my opinion, way better than anything Apple has done. And um, with my huge uh, multi-monitor setup here, I can connect to any PC, even my like super low-powered PC that's sitting in another room, which is basically just a gateway, and because my Mac has the power to drive, you know, three 30-inch monitors, suddenly my PC has the power to drive those three 30-inch monitors. And so I can take a really low-powered PC and expand it across. And now I'm running three monitors on this low-powered PC, which by itself could barely 
um, handle like a 24 inch monitor. So their, their, their remote desktop is amazing. Fantastic. Ken, uh, what's the star in the chat? Well, just a little note here. Uh, TJ is being congratulated for his ability to exercise his bilingual skills with the remark that the code switching takes some practice. So rah, rah for TJ. Good guy. Yeah, this is my little, my little MacBook and it's running my PC upstairs. So it's got Premiere running on it on a beast of a machine. So I can take advantage of the big graphics card, the 3070 that's in that machine. And I can play, I can JKL, I can check my file. So if I'm sitting down, down here, I can actually, uh, you know, make sure that uh, my files that need to be encoded could be encoded. Uh, so it's, it's a using my Microsoft remote desktop. The trick is you got to make sure that you do have the um, pro version of windows to make it, uh, to make it work. Otherwise you need a different, uh, a different uh, parsec or something like that to make it work. But yeah. And then this, this is an old uh, I seven version. So this thing will boot into bootcamp and be a native Intel machine as well. So pretty cool. Got it, Dave. Oh, I was just going to follow on Mitchell that it was quite a, a joy to me to be working on my laptop in a government office and have people walk by and see it's playing Windows and have them just stop in their tracks, look over my shoulder and go, is that Windows? And I go, yeah, that's Windows running, but that's a Mac. I go, yeah, runs a Mac. Yep, runs on a Mac. Get Mitchell? Uh, some folks might be interested, why would you want to do either? Um you know, in uh, in the interest of uh, what TJ was saying, here's my quick poll, what I got behind me. Linux, PC, 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 Mac, Mac, PC. So there's my quick poll. Fantastic. Let's go to our next question. Josh Kaufman from Pittsburgh, PA asks, what tech have you purchased in years past that is significantly more affordable today because of the march of technology and economy of scale? All right, a little fun one there. Go ahead, Dave. Well, for me, I went from a $36,000 camera to a $5,000 camera, which did twice as much as my $36,000 camera. So, yeah, I've seen the cost of cameras come down to the point where every every neighborhood kid could have one. Uh, as well, for me, lighting. Um, of course, heavy lighting systems for ENG and all that uh, have gotten a whole lot lighter and a whole lot easier, and they're a whole lot cheaper. Mitchell? Yes, I used to have a full head of hair uh, when I started in this business 40-some uh, years ago. Um, I'll give you an example of, uh, of just about everything has changed, the price-wise and technology in terms of scale. Um, I had a, uh, my first camera was in a Hitachi SK91. Beautiful pictures, um, about $40,000 without the lens. Um, I also bought an Ultimat. Uh, cost me about $35,000 when it was all said and done. You can buy one now from Blackmagic Design for $450. So you can begin to see that the economies of scale and technology have marched on as well as my hairline. <laughs> Good, TJ. Uh, yeah, like Mitch said, it's, it's darn near everything. I, I used to have a 21-inch CRT monitor. Um, it was an old NEC monitor. I don't know if anybody remember those with a flat screen. So it weighed a ton. I saw this thing weighed like 150 pounds. It was a beast. And now I'm sitting in front of three 30-inch monitors that are only like an inch thick. So that in itself is amazing. And they only weigh like five pounds a piece. So that's amazing. 
Um, I, I'm old enough to remember the day that at school, when we upgraded our Apple IIs from 16K of RAM to 32K of RAM. And that was a huge deal back then. So, and then now it's like, oh yeah, you know, my uh, you know Mac Studio has 64 gigabytes of RAM in it. You know, that's insane. And then um, I, I'm old enough to remember the old five inch floppies that you would take the paper punch and clip out on the other side to flip over to get, be able to use the other side, even though you weren't supposed to use the other side of it. And now I've got a 48 terabyte NAS box sitting in the other room. Yeah, I didn't think about that. You can not just price, but also weight and uh, weight and, and capacity. Yeah, we could do a whole nother question on that. Go ahead, Tony. Yeah, I just wanted to mention with Blackmagic's uh, announcement this week, the thing about switchers and the fact that I can actually use a switcher, that, that is something that was unheard of uh, years ago. And now, not only can you have a switcher in your home, you can have vMix and Mimo Live and Ecamm, which are software switchers. So what a world we live in. Go ahead, John. When I graduated college, which doesn't feel like a long time ago, I spent $500 on a tiny little hard drive, eight gigabytes that was just devoted to playing music. And it was still a spinning hard drive. It's unbelievable. Mitchell. Yeah, once again, to put it into perspective, um, anybody remember Quantel Paintbox? That was like the thing before there was a Photoshop, and that was an expensive four dollars $300,000 box. Uh, we also, at a, at a studio, had a thing called a Mirage, which was a DVE device that could do maybe a fraction of the things that your little ATEM sitting here on your desk can do. It was a million-dollar piece of equipment that ran on a PDP-11, so things certainly have changed. I was thinking about, I have a ATEM uh, Extreme next to me that has uh, eight channels of um, ISO recording uh, next to it and switcher uh, capability. So fantastic. And yeah, if you factor in the software switchers, there's a lot of extensibility you can get just with that if you're talking about the functionality. All right, that was fun. Let's go to our next question. Mitchell Hill from Wilmington, Delaware is up next. What is the best workflow for a standing Ultimate Studio? Camera, lighting, and distances. Guy? I don't know if I'd say it's the best, but we've been using ours in our one-button studio. So uh, ours is basically a, a light up here in the top left that you can see that's an aperture light. There's another one, a hair light. And then we it's not pictured in this one, but uh, there's a couple lighting up the green screen now. Uh, and the results of the Ultimate, as you, we'll, we'll go a little bit further here. The Ultimate's inside of that case over there. And then... Right here, you see the green screen, and then he's going to pop it into the Ultimate. And the results, I wish you guys could see it not through Zoom because the results, because it's keying in a 444 environment. This is the, um, the 995 version, not the 495 version. So this isn't the H, uh, HD uh, base unit. And you could see, <laughs> it's kind of goofy that he put, puts on a wig, but you could see that the hair quality is pretty amazing. And it's a pretty simple studio, small nine by 12 room, green screen, and a couple lights. Uh, so again, I wouldn't say it's it's the best example, but it's one that we're using and people are very happy with for the price. We, we had to have uh, Key and Phil put into Mimo Live to get our system to be able to work that we wanted so that the 495 level, you can just have the composite done in the machine. And 
I've owned uh, the Ultimate DV uh, for years. So that was the small one back 15 years ago. We, we owned quite a few of them where the composite would just pop right out. So uh, that one was uh, not very expensive because it was just the DV model. It would output, it was just standard definition. This was way before HD. But now seeing what you can do with the newer model, it blows my mind because that one was $30,000 plus. So, I mean, a typical studio would light the green screen well with... Uh, its own lights and try to make it, if you have a waveform, vector scope, all that, you can really dial it in and make sure it's even across the entire board. So there's a little bit of skill there, but I mean, with Ultimate, it is pretty forgiving. I mean, as much as I'd say it's uh, difficult to use, it's it's pretty forgiving. So we, we've got, when I walked into the room and saw the results, I, my jaw literally dropped because we're using a BGH-1 with a 12 to 35 lens, which is a pretty crisp lens, 2.8 lens. It's only like 700 bucks. But that sensor, it's a micro four-thirds sensor, but man, it is it's sharp, tack sharp. So really impressive What to the last question, what did you buy that uh, was expensive before and it's cheap now? I mean, the Ultimat, is, it's amazing value if you want to have these virtual backdrops. Yeah, guy. And I know that, um, of course, you want to do your best with your lighting uh, and not rely on the king of the Ultimat, but... Um, what if we're thinking about maybe sending that, um, maybe the, um, the, the cheaper box that can do the compositing inside of it, if you wanted to send it remotely and maybe your, your remote audience isn't the best at getting their, their key up. Do you think that might be useful to send? Um, might be helpful if it's something you wanted you'd to, be to push fighting it. If you could take over their PC, like VPN in and, or team or something in and, and take over the screen and you do the adjustments, I think it'd be all right. But I mean, we're seeing just with the, the whole Snapchat, it, you know, being able to knock backgrounds out with most people are pretty forgiving. What I'm talking about is for people that want to record and want to have something really, really perfect for, for some of the remote stuff. I think nowadays people, they, they don't mind if it's even the Zoom key or as long as you use the, uh, the one where it says, I have a green screen and you click on that button, then it cleans even Zoom's key is pretty darn good compared to what we saw even a few years ago. Uh, if you guys haven't used Zoom's key, try it with, with the, I have a green screen and click the little button and, and the eyedropper will pop up and you, you take a sample and it, it's pretty decent, if, especially if you have an HD account, a 1080 account. Watch out. Mayhem's going to ensue on the panel now. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, one of the cool things about the Ultimat is it fixes things that you make mistakes with. Um, you know, the best rule of thumb, a first rule of Fight Club, so to speak, is light the green screen first and get a very even, good color on that so that the uh, uh, the composite can work well without all the little sparklies and other things to come into it. But the Ultimat sort of there to fix some of those. But the whole point is best not to have to fix it in the first place. And uh, like Guy said, if you get a really well-lit uh, green screen, then you might even try the Zoom uh, uh, green screen capability, and it might be good enough uh, to avoid the uh, the box. But uh, getting a good key is uh, is a alchemy. It's uh, You have to be really good at it, and you have to have the right tools. One of the things I was thinking, um, and, and maybe Guy can come back and uh, jump in on this, is that... Um, what camera would be best to use with getting a key? Obviously, 444 would be the ultimate, but let's say you've got a 420 camera. Would that be a would that be a big handicap? Well, typically the 420 is going to happen in the record cycle. It's not the output. So the HDMI is normally uncompressed or is uh, it's 422 on most of the even cheap cameras. So you're getting the full bandwidth where they dumb it down is yeah at the record side. So 
um, yeah, it's, it's not really an, an issue. So depending on what, if it's a even $700, you know, Sony uh, ZV-1 or whatever, that's still going to give you an amazing picture because it's, it's going in digital. It's, in the olden days, when we first started doing this stuff, we had like, you know, cable issues and get soft because it's going over composite or component or S-video. And nowadays with pure digital and going into a digital box, doing a digital composite in this 444 atmosphere. So if your background is a, uh, let's say a laptop and you're feeding in uh, a pure digital signal, that's 444, the color processing is happening in 444. And you got all this math that's happening for you that's uh, super complicated, but they make it easy with Ultimate software. I mean, that's part of, you can go advanced and, and dig into it if you want and adjust the 37 controls, or you can just dumb it down and keep it, keep it nice and easy so that uh, you're getting good results, but you can fine tune it if you want to be an engineer and dive deep. TJ, do you want to weigh in? Yeah. Uh, Mitch's question also mentioned distances. And I was just curious, um, we haven't talked about distances at all and wondering, especially from the green screen to the subject, um, you know, is there a, a recommended distance so that you're either not getting um, any spill or shadow, uh, you know, spill from the green onto the subject or shadow from the subject on the green screen, if that makes a difference? And then subject to camera, is there any recommended distance between subject and camera? I think in the olden days, there, there was more of a rule of thumb of you want to get a good five, six feet away, depending on how bright your lights are. But I've seen people get away with with even like we're we're doing maybe three feet on ours. We're just using some pavo tubes now on the sides. They're not they weren't in that picture, but that's what we've added is two pavo tubes. And yeah, you want to be aware of they call it spill uh, bouncing back onto the person's head and shoulder, especially if they're wearing light colored clothing like a white shirt, and then the green bounces back on. That's where it's really apparent. So you can get away with some. Uh, some wardrobe changes to to alleviate that, but where it's nasty is like blonde hair with uh, green bouncing into the hair and then having to do a de-spill correction because then the opposite of green is magenta. So then you're adding magenta into blonde hair, which really starts to add add, add some funkiness. But again, yeah, if you can figure this out in, in uh, pre-production and figure out what lighting and staging and all that, the room dimensions to avoid these pitfalls, then you just don't have to deal with it. But uh, the cameras are also a lot more sensitive. So this used to be an issue in the olden days where, man, I, I must be getting old because I keep saying olden days. <laughs> so the, we used to have a lot of high, uh, because the cameras weren't as sensitive, we had to have a lot of brighter lights. And that's what caused that bounce back. And so nowadays what I'm seeing with our studio is that because the camera doesn't need as much light, uh, we're not getting as much spill onto the talent. Sorry, guy, my fault. Next time I'm going to put a question and it says, what's the youngest person you've heard using the expression olden days? Go ahead, uh, Mitchell. Yeah, uh, once again, Ultimat to the rescue because it does a great job of killing spill, which can be a problem, as Guy mentioned there. Um, and to TJ's point about shadows, um, Ultimat will do shadows, which is kind of cool because if you're doing a like a weather thing and you put your hand up and it's just like flat and it doesn't have dimensionality that uh, a shadow would good a, a uh, an ultimate will allow a shadow or semi-transparent things like a glass of water to be held up in front of the uh, the screen you'll be able to see the ultimate uh, working behind that so that is that is a nice nice touch when you're doing a key is to be able to have semi-transparent in a practical sense if you're turning your head and looking through this area of the glasses that are semi-transparent on most other keys uh, it'll get all blotchy and messed up. Uh, with an Ultimat, it'll show through just like this was a uh, background here. Fantastic. Um, Guy? 
Yeah, I was showing it in after hours. If you guys want during the week, uh, ping me on Discord and let me know. I'll, I'll walk right into that room and, and grab a glass of water or I was doing it with a water bottle. It did key. It was an Aquafina water bottle the other day and it had a green cap. And so we did have some issues, uh, but I can open up the app if I get the admin privileges from Jason and I can show you guys where he's got it set. I don't want to mess it up too much. So I don't know how much of it. Well, maybe I can, I'll just save the settings, but yeah, hit me on Discord and I'll show you guys uh, what... Uh, what it looks like with the interface and any kind of transparent object that you want to play with. All right, fantastic. We had a great discussion there. Let's go to our next question. Rashid Trevetti from Daytona Beach, Florida is up next. Keely, it's loving having you on. Could you help explain partially the update that was out for the 21st of this month? I read something about server and paywalls. Yeah, Keely. Yes, Harshid, uh, that announcement actually on the 21st was probably more to announce the uh, the 4K integration and uh, offloading of work onto the NVIDIA graphics card, but they took that opportunity to re-announce something that they had announced a little while back, which was the server subscriptions, which uh, they targeted at creators, which was... I thought a very interesting angle to take because they haven't really talked much towards the uh, creator community prior to that. And what they did is they recruited a few of the popular creators, but the biggest one here being uh, Marquez Brownlee, and he did an entire segment on this. And what they've done here with uh, with the Discord embedded or native subscriptions is they've made a very easy way to create three tiers of memberships of monthly subscriptions and people can pay with credit cards, Google Pay, Apple Pay, they're working on PayPal and crypto, which is really cool. And it allows you to easily create benefits and access to different things inside the server. But that actually isn't the only tool that's ever been available because there is a, a a very, very popular bot called Me6 that has had memberships for quite some time. They had to readjust their naming when Discord came up with their product. I'm sure they were in a conversation and Discord said, hey, can you change yours to monetize and nobody will get mad? And they said, okay, and off they went. So the built-in Me6 subscriptions allow you much more flexibility. So here on my server uh, for Discord Coach, I have two levels of memberships, but I can have up to 10 tiers, whereas the built-in Discord server memberships only give you three. And you do also get your, uh, your, your built-in page and things like that if you want to show off those memberships. But uh, the biggest benefit to me is that Me6 only takes 5% and Discord takes 10, which to me is is a bit much. But when you have it built in, it makes sense. Actually making the memberships, the, the subscriptions, very, very easy. Doc and I actually did it on his stream live the day after it was announced. And we just went through and clicked through things. I had no previous knowledge. We just went through it and it worked out really beautifully. And now he has that set up on his page on his Discord right here. So it's it's a really uh, it's a really neat way to do things. They obviously targeted creators, but I'm thinking that by reaffirming that message or sort of re-releasing the feature in in a press release like that, maybe it didn't catch on quite like the house on fire they were looking for and thought, 
oh, we need to tell some more people about this. And it was a bit maybe targeted to creators over much least. So we'll see how this goes. But it's a great way to get some uh, some support back to the person who owns the community or the business that owns the community and and get it moving in a money positive direction. Seems like a pretty big deal, Kaylee. Is this something that um, would utilize some crowdfunding like Patreon or maybe compete with those platforms? It competes with those platforms. So the problem with uh, Patreon and say YouTube subscriptions or buy me a coffee, which are ways that have been around for a long time to actually subscribe to a server and gain benefits and reward the creator, the community owner for their work. Those tend to take quite a bit of a slice. And the problem with those is they're really tied to the home platform as it were for what benefits you can provide. So if it's a YouTube subscription, membership, for example, what you're doing is you're allowing people to access cooler things on YouTube. If that's not your model as a community creator, if you're not providing great, you know, special content, exclusive content for people there, it really doesn't make sense to use YouTube as your membership platform. What's nice about Discord, uh, the Discord built in or say a me six is that it's more about what you do in the Discord server rather than what you do externally. So there, it's just a question of what option fits your business or community model the best and how you want to deliver that exclusivity. Very nice. I don't know if you've gotten any chance to uh, kick the tires or see how well it's been implemented yet, but uh, I know that uh, in the past I've been able to purchase Discord assets like bots using Patreon and some of the other ones. Uh, do you see this sort of taking over or maybe being a, being a big draw to someone's Discord server because they have these uh, payment options? Yes, I, I think so. I think a lot of the, uh, the the premium bot owners looked at this and went, oh, really? Now I don't have to use Patreon to do things? Because whenever you take people out to an external platform and say, okay, pay me there, pay the membership fee there, and I have to write community posts to alert you to things that are happening there, you're taking people away from your community. And for me, the whole power of what Discord can provide is that whole experience inside the community. So people are there, they pay for things inside the community, they're not going off platform. It's all about that stickability aspect. So I think there's a lot of folks that if it wasn't a formidable task to move memberships, and it really is, it's not fun. I've done it a couple times uh, to to move to a different platform. I think a lot of bot owners would be saying it would, would be jumping on this right away just because the ease of use the embeddability everybody knows that that's the way to go so yeah i think it's going to happen yeah absolutely it seems like this is a big draw big deal uh that people think that they can uh, monetize they may choose discord over other options uh seeing this so fantastic how, how long has this been uh been rolled out keely again um let's see if i look at the date that was on the uh that, that was on the youtube video i think so that was two months ago. Yeah. So it was it was about mid December that Discord released the native function. But like I said, Me6 has had it embedded in their bot for I think a year and a half now. It's been a long time. It's just not been, you know, super well publicized because for all the great features about Discord, apparently it takes somebody like me to come on a show like Office Hours and, you know. Sp you know, spread the word and, and surprise everybody with this knowledge. So there you go. That's right. We were waiting for you there. 
All right, let's go to our next question. Ronnie Hafsi from Tromsø, Norway says, I know a Netgear M4250 would fit perfectly. If not planning for NDI, only Dante and multiple VLANs and SFP Plus for trunking, what would be the right choice? Seen a lot of TP-Link products being used. Okay, I'll have Harshid and then Guy. Mine was actually for a previous question, but I'll pass it on to Guy. No worries. Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, I was interested in hearing what Harshid was going to say. I thought he was going to clean my clock on this one. Um, yeah, I've seen a lot of TP-Link out there as well in uh, production. So I would say if you've done the research and you see other people using it, it's probably a good way to go. If you could isolate it and want to save some some money. But if you ever do want to go um, NDI, the 4250 line has a profile that'll play nice with both, which is pretty unique. So if you want to ever put... NDI 5 as well as Dante on the same VLAN, there is a setting which is right here where when you scroll down in your uh, configured profiles, you can see it right here where it says NDI 5 with Dante. And so it's uh, NDI 5, which is RUDP uh, devices and cameras, and then you can have Dante as well. Uh, and it's all supported on the same VLAN. And then, yeah, these ones do support trunking. So I have two uh, right now auto trunk together. So th this uh, uplink port is... Uh, uh, it is going to another same model, 4250, uh, and everything appears on that other one. And, and uh, I'm going to upgrade it to 10 gig. There's a 10 gig NIC or uh, SFP module in there right now, but I was doing some experimenting and wanting to see how that, uh, because they recommend one that's like $300 that's uh, guaranteed. So you can get really expensive really fast. If you listen to what's qualified, then they want to only see qualified SFPs. And this is where the TP-Link stuff can be a lot less expensive because you're not dealing with, you know, industry, industrial grade um, items. But if you want this for a production, I'd go with the M4250 with the proper manufacturer recommended SFP modules. And how's the uh, the noise levels on that guy? Uh, does it get any well, noisier when you go to 10 gig mode? That's the other thing is, uh, let me show you down here. There is a fan mode. So right now on mine, I have it set to, uh, where is it? I have mine set to low. So yeah, fan one, active, active, active. And so you see this fan mode, I have it on quiet. And if I hit cool, I have noise assist on. Oh, it just sounds like a jet airplane. So, <laughs> okay, <laughs> pushing that button. <laughs> it's really loud in here now. Uh, I'm gonna go back to quiet mode. Yeah, that, that, wow. Okay, so the answer is, is not quiet at all if you, put it on fan mode it gets very very loud it sounds it sounds like a jet airplane fantastic now it's one more thing i've got to do for a live stream turn my uh turn my switch down All right, let's go to our next question paul valhus from cedar creek texas says i just joined something called polywork and he has a link is this actually a worthwhile social network go ahead john it depends on if your social network is there. I think it's going to really struggle to compete with LinkedIn, which is what most people use for professional social networks. And I don't think it's very likely to take off. Most of the people I saw in there were engineers of various sorts. Next question. Leonard Brandt from South Africa asks, what would be the best, what, yeah, sorry, what would the best audio restoration software for Mac be, both free and paid for? I'm thinking of restoring tape hiss and poor noise from old recordings and cleaning them up. 
Mitchell? Wow, Leonard, you gave me a, a big uh, offer here. The best. Um, well, let's see. There's a bunch of them out there that are really good. Um, Waves makes a whole line of uh, processors, uh, uh, plugins that go in there. Sorry about my dog walking around. Uh, and also uh, the folks at uh, Isotope has the RX-10, which I think is probably the best all-around uh, noise reduction uh, uh, thing that can uh, go in there and clean up hiss and noise and things like that. And then as far as free goes, don't discount the fact that the DAW that you bought probably has a plug-in that does this, and that's free essentially because you already own it. So um, you might want to try that. But uh, I think some of the, uh, the, uh, the hubs out there or forums will point you in the right direction where you can get a free plug-in to do something. Problem with them is they're just not going to be supported and they're not going to be as good as if uh, you went to Isotope or Waves to get it. Go ahead, Keely. Yeah, one of the suggestions I would try is Aphonic. I've had some really good results using it for cleaning up uh, audio that maybe isn't in the state that you've got yours in, but it's a really lightweight and very customizable solution. It is free, so you can try a bunch of things for, uh, as you can see uh, in my account, I haven't paid for this because I only periodically put in produced video and you get two hours for free, I think every month, and then you can you can pay. And I everybody I've talked to, it's well worth the money. And a lot of people use this as their primary audio processor to make sure that post uh, post recording, they can get things the way that they want. Another solution that you might try in case you have it, you never know, look for the tools that you already have. Descript Studio Sound is for some people just absolutely magic. You just turn that on and all of a sudden everything sounds amazing. So give that a try if you already have a Descript, pardon me, subscription. If you don't, then uh, I would go with Alphonic. Fantastic. Let's go to our next question. Zach Phillips from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania comes in. Does the Ultimate HD Mini, even though it only outputs HD, take a 4K signal in? I'm actually down to the wire on this one. And after hours, trying to pull a key in less than ideal circumstances. Guy, we got a 911. Can we help him out? <laughs> from what I can see in the specs, I haven't tried this, but it looks like it's only going to take HD in. To get the 4K in, you'd have to up to the next model, which is the Ultimate 12 4K, which is $2,495. So you're, you're talking about $2,000 more. So you really got to ask yourself, is it worth it? So I don't know if you're going to see the difference if you're outputting HD only. If it, I know that you're getting some subsampling there because you're dealing with more pixels. In, in theory, it, it, it's going to give you that much better crisper of an image. But I mean, for the money already, I don't think your client's going to be that picky. Like you, you really got to, I mean, I don't know if I'd be able to visually see the difference on a screen from a few feet away if I could see the difference from a 4K image versus a, an HD image that was composited that's going out HD anyway. So I don't, I, I'd probably just buy it from a reseller that you can return it. If you don't like the image, then just return it. So 495 bucks and, you know, move, go, do it. Mitchell? Yeah, I guess if you had an actual 4K output from an Ultimate 4K, um, the, if you ran it into an ATEM, it's going to get downsampled. The question is, it is a better image because it got downsampled? And I think theoretically, yes. Uh, the question is, how big a difference are you going to see for the extra 3000 some dollars you would be spending? Um, I think that there may be other issues going on. Uh, Guy, just so you know, trying to avoid uh, getting the sparklies. That's what's uh, haunting his uh, key. Nice. All right. Hopefully we've helped you out, Zach. Let's go to our next question. 
Samuel Nordvik from Norway wants to know, are you using the built-in streaming encoder on ATEM Mini Series for real projects? Um, for myself, I've not um, used the encoder when using the ATEM as a switcher. Um, sometimes it's good to have, well, oftentimes it's good to have encoding done on another piece of equipment. Um, even another computer, really a, a computer is another piece of equipment too. So oftentimes you can take your outputs of your um, your ATEM series, let the ATEM do the switching and use something else uh, for your encoding. Uh, go ahead, Guy. Yeah, I really like to separate them because I like to fine tune and there's things that um, I like to adjust, like if I'm sending mine H.265 over to another place like AWS first, and that way I can deal with smaller uh, transport sizes, especially if I'm going over cellular, I can save money uh, by not, if it's a multi-day event, it really starts to add up. And I, I just like the redundancy of having not just even one encoder, but two. And if that ATEM grade thing happened, if I had to unplug my ATEM to reset it, you'd nuke your stream. So uh, I'd rather have it separate. And then I always have a fallback position anyway to camera one or my wide shot and being able to still stream. Because uh, I've had it happen. I mean, I've had it happen with 11,000 people on where stuff went out and it's like, oh my gosh, at least the the backup. And so we had a Teradek. Uh, so a couple models to use, Epifan Pearl, Teradek makes some great models, Magewell as well. I'd be looking at those those three. Um, and then OBS, if if you don't want to spend any money and you have a decent computer, OBS, uh, even uh, the latest version has H.265. And if you could bounce it off something else like uh, Restream.io, uh, that gives you a, a, a little bit more, um, uh, just there's other ways that you can push, push stuff around if you send it somewhere else uh, to give you a little bit of a backstop. Yeah, yeah well, well put. And um, I... I don't mind having it um, built in, and you know sometimes you can take advantage of it, especially if it's something that's not um, you know mission critical. But um, yeah, if you can, try to stream out, like Guy says. Let's go to our next question. Paul Vahus from Cedar Creek, Texas. Up next, for an LG brand 43UN700T-B 43-inch quad monitor, how would you make up a cable harness to combine all the HDMI, USB, and power cables and then equip the quad with a visa mount and stand that allowed it to go vertical? Go ahead, DJ. Well, for, as far as bundling the cables go, um, that's the part I can only speak to right now. Um, they make a product called Wireloom. And you can use that to bundle lots of different cables together to get a nice, uh, concise uh, wrap of cables uh, that easy to manage. Uh, just be careful that if you're bundling power and signal together to make sure your signal cables are very well shielded. Good advice. Let's go to our next question, TJ. Hershid Travetti from Daytona Beach, Florida. YouTube charges 30% and Patreon charges roughly 10%. What are some good methods of creating revenue with regards to either paywalls or something that can support someone? Keely. Hi, remember my conversation earlier about Discord service? Sorry. It, it's really annoying. I, I have to stop. But a few things that you can consider just being in the creator community, ways that I've done things are to use, say, buy me a coffee. That was very popular a couple years ago. They got a little bit off track, I think, with their development and started having problems with their PayPal integration. So I'm not so uh, warm to, to be Mac at the moment. But that was a really good low cost way to be able to basically set out a tip jar and, and make a really cute 
little overlays and little easily tweet outable. Oh, this person supported me on buy me a coffee. You can buy me a pizza. You can buy me a, my phrase was buy me a rosé. And uh, that's, that's a nice way to do things. Uh, PayPal has a little link that you can use and people can just send money to your PayPal. Um, I know there's lots of people who hold out tip jars for Venmo. To me, I'm more of a fan of creating a longer term relationship with people who you can provide value to that you can can have a sustained relationship with. Tip jars are very just, I don't know, it feels cheap and, and not too um, valuable to me. So I'm looking for something that says, I'm going to give you something valuable on a long term basis here. Here's my product. Here is my membership come on board. And of course I'm using discord for that, but I've, I've been using, you know, WordPress subscriptions and things like that. And WooCommerce on more elaborate websites for a few years. And that's worked out really well for me. So hopefully that gives you a few ideas. John, what are your thoughts? I think it's really important to understand your product market fit, which is a fancy way of saying knowing who your audience is and what they want. You could make the best sailboats in the world but if you sold them in the middle of the Sahara Desert, you probably wouldn't make as much money as if you sold bottled water. So you want to go to where your audience is, even if that means you're paying more on like a cut, because take, for example, YouTube, maybe YouTube takes 30% of the profits, but if they have three times the audience, it's well worth the difference. So go where your audience is, charge a price that you can afford to charge, and then let the rest work it out by having great content. I love it when you say it the fancy way. All right, let's go to the next question. Paul Walhus in Cedar Creek, Texas. Storaxa looks promising as an open source network attached storage, and it doesn't require any hard drive rails. Does it have a future vis-a-vis -vis Synology? John? It's a really cool looking device. Uh, remember, it's on Kickstarter. In Kickstarter, you are not buying the device. You are paying for a business to start, start up. You might or might not receive it. So you might just be donating money to a business and not getting any sort of equity in the business itself. Yeah, it is. It's tempting though. If you have some uh, disposable income, you know, you know, you don't need it. Mission critical. It could be fun, you know, to to fund some of those things. Let's go to our next question. And our final question for the first hour: Paul Walhus in Cedar Creek, Texas. How do you gauge when to sell a piece of used gear on eBay? Go ahead, Dave. Well, I usually judge if I haven't used something for about two years. And if I had to go dust it off, that that's going to be when I put it up on eBay. Yeah. The dust of death. Gotcha. Go ahead, Mitchell. Uh, when it stops working. <laughs> Remind me never to buy anything from Mitchell. Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, somebody who sold, uh, let's see, 69,000 items on eBay with 100% feedback. Um, yeah, it, it it's... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, uh, that, was, that was a little bit of a flex. Uh, yeah, we, we sell stuff when it's uh, a new models come out or if we don't need it for a backup anymore. But yeah, we, we move a lot of our stuff that we, we test. So we'll, we'll buy things, we'll test it out. Like one of the things I really want to buy is like the FR7. So some of the other things are going on eBay to look at buying an FR7. So it's also when you figure out that you want that other thing that's just out of reach. So you start looking around and going, hey, I haven't used that ATEM Mini Pro in a while because I have the Extreme. It's time to go. So uh, that's how some of our decisions are made. Is just like, what's next? And when's the usefulness? And do I need it for a backup? Keely? Not that I like Facebook, but there is Facebook Marketplace. And it is sometimes a good place to 
perhaps list your more consumer grade products and get things offloaded a little faster. You need to have a high tolerance for jerks who might stand you up. But other than that, I do recommend it as a way to at least sell to your local market and get things. And to me, David, I mean, two years is too long. I'm one of those minimalist jerks who wants to get rid of things in, in about six months if I haven't used it because I also live in a small apartment. But your mileage will vary. A fun fact, that background back there, Facebook Marketplace, just saying. All right, folks. Well, um, we appreciate all of the questions for our first hour. Uh, we're not going to waste any time of getting right into our education hour. Uh, John, what do you have? Thanks, Josh. Our topic today is stress and burnout in education specifically. But if you have questions about stress and burnout, I'm sure they apply. Um, healthcare and education are two industries that have been really impacted throughout the pandemic because they never had a chance to close. They were forced to find ways to operate in the midst of the biggest changes we've ever had. And our guest this week is one of my colleagues from our hospital, Allison Sharko, and she has a foot in both industries. Allison is a doctoral candidate studying behavioral psychology, and she's passionate about understanding and preventing burnout. Also remember that this point in the school year is when students are starting to get disengaged and teachers are really starting to feel the impact of going through yet another school year. So it's a great time to talk about stress and burnout. Um, so we hope that our producers will put their questions into our Mukana chat. Uh, but Allison, can you share us a little about your work and background, especially as it relates to education? John, so yes, hello, my name is Allison Sharko. And as John mentioned, I'm a doctoral candidate at the University of Nevada, Reno, I'm working on my degree in behavioral psychology. Um, and I've been working in a local healthcare system in Northern Nevada for a year and a half. But prior to that, I spent seven years working at the UNR Medical School, helping the executive leadership teams and faculty build evidence-based burnout and implicit bias management curriculums that we wove into the medical school education so that future physicians would be equipped with the best practices for how they can manage their biases and burnout. Um, and I also try to stay very close to the literature with this approach, which is known as acceptance and commitment therapy or acceptance and commitment training. And there's been some interesting research with acceptance and commitment therapy that's found that even um, just bibliotherapy, so essentially these self-help workbooks that are rooted in this um, <clears throat> scientific approach have been, they've demonstrated their ability to help educators with managing their burnout um, so that they can manage themselves and therefore provide better educational services to the students that they work with. Yeah, and it's really interesting to me, Allison, that your approach isn't just, when, when I think of mindfulness, um, and I, this is going to sound cavalier, but it's a little woo, and mm -hmm. you think of just people feeling good, but what you've brought and what's been really interesting to me is that evidence-based approach. Can you talk a little bit about what some of the evidence is and, and that connection between the, the practical application and the science behind it? Yeah. So also, I apologize. My throat's, I just noticed my throat's a little scratchy. Um, so what I love about the work that I've been doing for 
like I said, the past seven or eight years now is we're taking acceptance and commitment therapy and we are modifying it into a training skills training context. So I refer to myself as an acceptance and commitment trainer. And we take a lot of these traditional mindfulness approaches that most people come into contact with if they have experience in, if they attend a meditation class or they attend a yoga class or they download an app then there's a particular way that these mindfulness skills are introduced that have a lot of other cultural um, traditions attached to the skills. And from a scientist practitioner lens, essentially what we're doing is we're trying to identify what are the key processes within these practices that are leading to long-term behavior change. Um, independent of the cultural aspects that often they originate from. Um, so when I'm working with medical students or healthcare providers, I've, I have essentially a toolkit of mindfulness skills that we use um, to help them come into contact with these practices in a way that's a little less woo-woo. Uh, I think I did a training, I was able to work with John on a training not too long ago where we, uh, I'll typically use the metaphor of we're entering psychological gym and I talk about building our present moment muscle. So I try to frame it in the context of we're going to enter the psychological gym right now and we're going to be building our psychological muscles. And using that metaphor um, has found, it's been found to be a, a little more effective at uh, getting uh, individuals to come into contact with this without their implicit biases towards the cultural aspects of this work that tend to get in the way of people fully practicing these skills. And is, is there anything uh, unique to remote work or uh, remote teaching that maybe we should be considering uh, in today's world as regarding stress and burnout? Yeah, I think um, there's obviously pros and cons to remote work. One pro is that we have a lot of autonomy over our working conditions. We get to choose the chairs, our lighting, the types of uh, workspaces that and in, in our bubbles that we're working in. Um, but especially for educators, we there's less autonomy in terms of the environment that our learners are learning in. So the ability to build that things that we could do to build that present moment muscle for our learners to have to get them closer, uh, more fully engaged with the screen. Um, that's definitely a hurdle in, in this now virtual platform that we're working in. Um, does that answer the question? It does. And I have, I have okay. one more personal question before I uh, hand it off to our, our panels for their questions and input. Allison, mm -hmm. what, are, what are some of the initial signs people should be aware of that might indicate that they're leading into stress or burnout? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, so what's unique about that question is I normally turn that question back to the audience when I'm doing this work and I'll ask you, can you, can you tell me what are some physical, when, first of all, I like to start with just the general question of raise your hand if you've ever felt stressed before. So it'd be, I would like to see it, just raise your hand if you've ever felt stressed before. Okay, everyone in the room, I see two hands up there. That's great. Now raise your hand if you've ever felt burnt out before. Okay, I'm seeing a handful of hands as well. Um, and I like to ask this question at the very beginning to get everyone in the room to see that everyone has experienced stress, everyone has experienced burnout, because these are really not, I've, 
stress and burnout are really products of a faulty system that is a that creates a breeding uh, ground for stress and burnout to emerge. So we're constantly under pressures from the system that we live within that is creating conditions for elongated, uh, prolonged stress, which ultimately leads to burnout. When we talk about stress, stress is really um, you can think about it as it tends to be more of these acute stimuli that we come into contact with. So if there was a tiger that were to run into one our room right now, um, we would have all of us, regardless of our individual histories, would have an unconditioned startle response to a tiger running into the room. Um, and that would be considered a stressor. But if we're constantly coming into contact with these psychological tigers for an elongated period of time, that's when we find ourselves in this realm of burnout, which is typically described as being comprised of three main components, emotional exhaustion, um, depersonalization towards ourselves or towards others. So that's when we, in healthcare, oftentimes it's when we start treating people like numbers rather than people. Um, also in education, when you start depersonalizing your students and it's, and it's more difficult for you to take the perspective of your students and have empathy and compassion for them, as well as having empathy and compassion for yourself. And then a general reduced sense of personal effect, uh, uh, efficacy. You don't really feel like you're accomplishing much. And um, so once now that we have a good understanding of their stress, there's burnout and everyone raised their hand saying they've experienced burnout, I'd like to turn the question to the audience and ask when you've experienced burnout, what are some physical symptoms in your body that have shown up for you? I know for me, the first thing I, I start noticing is I'm impatient especially with my kids. Um, and I will, mm -hmm. things that did not trigger me previously would trigger me more. So if anyone else on the panel has, would like to raise your hand, feel free. Or if you want to just uh, answer Allison's questions directly. Short uh, fuse, I would in. say, this is Arshid. Uh, I would say short fuse of uh, with people um, mm -hmm. and just not really being snappy, but you just, and the last term, as you said on burnout, is yourself, you don't feel like you're uh, being effective to the environment. And um I think some of those are definitely things that pop up. So there's that short fuse. You're maybe a little more reactive rather than responsive. Um, how Does anyone experience headaches when you're yes. stressed? Yeah, migraines maybe. Anyone have um, maybe some digestive issues, like you, have, you start to have stomach aches, you have an increase in appetite or you have a decrease in your appetite. Um, so I like to ask the audience because each of us have our own individual bodies that respond to stress in different ways. I mean, not everyone raised their hand when I said headaches, but some people did. Not everyone is going to raise their hand when we talk about um, having stomach aches. And not everyone will raise their hand when we even talk about like kind of being reactive or you're a little more agitated, a little more aggressive. Some people might be a little more agitated. Some people might be a little more introverted and closed off um, and avoidant in social interactions. So the more this is the the value of these mindfulness skills is they start to sharpen our ability to notice our own personal physical symptoms to stress and to burnout. Uh, an example I frequently use is I have I get an eye twitch uh, when I am very very stressed. And especially when I was um, completing my graduate courses, I would have an eye twitch and it would last me for about 
two to three weeks. And then if I didn't do something to res- to um, essentially manage that eye twitch, then it would turn into a migraine and that would knock me out for another week or two. But as I've been building my own mindfulness muscles, my own mindfulness skills, now it doesn't take me two to three weeks to just notice that I have an eye twitch. I can normally catch it within the first day, the first two days at least that I have this eye twitch. And I've done some values clarification work with myself to identify that my health is a foundational component to my well-being. So now when I notice the eye twitch within the first day or two, um, rather than me trying to grin and bear it and just get through it, which ultimately leads to a migraine and me crashing, I attend to it very seriously. I reflect on how's my hydration levels? How's my sleeping patterns going? What aspects of my schedule this week do I need to cancel and say no to so I can catch up on my sleep and um, essentially remove any excess stimuli from my environment for a moment so I can uh, address the eye twitch so it doesn't lead me down this path of burnout. Uh, But again, that's my unique story. But if you have migraines, if you have stomach aches, some people carry a lot of tension in their shoulders or they have chronic pain in particular points in their body. It could be that the moment you're noticing that chronic pain is flaring up again in that particular part of your body, that's a signal to your body that you are under stress and some remediation strategies uh, should be that it's it's a cue to your body to manage that stress um, to ultimately help prevent yourself from getting down to that path of burnout where you're crashing. Thanks. And I know Dave on our panel has uh, some comment or question. Yeah, I had a, I had a question much earlier, of course, uh, but I also wanted to add that some years ago, and I think it's in the 70s, I got to watch uh, Hans Selye present and he used the phrase, uh, life without stress is death, because we all have stress. It's part of life. It's part of the operation of your body. And therefore, your response to it is the most important thing to learn. And I think that's what you're giving us today. Uh, I did want to ask if you felt that uncertainty about the future uh, is a, a source of stress, in certainly in the work and career environment. Yeah, though, um, first of all, I I 100% agree with the comment that that phrase that life without stress is death. And that's why I am another aspect of the acceptance and commitment uh, training and therapy model or act is that acceptance piece, which is essentially understanding that stress be mean is a signal that you're alive. And there, it would be very condescending for me to go into a room of people and, and tell you my solution for you is don't be stressed because that's obviously not very effective. So this work is really, I try to emphasize that it's not so much a stress reduction training or a burnout reduction training, but really a stress management training and a burnout management training. So accepting that stress is an, is an inevitable aspect of our lives and what psychological tools can we carry with us in our toolbox to more healthfully navigate those stressors when we do inevitably come into contact with them. Um, and then this insert, this uncertainty towards the future is another psychological stressor that all of us have come into contact with. It could be in relation to our workplace context, the uncertainty of our jobs, um, but also we experience uncertainty in relation to our personal relationships with others, in relation to our own personal health and well-being. And um, in the psychology literature, 
um, this actually comes back to mindfulness and building our present moment awareness skills and noticing what is within our control in the current present moment that can help us manage our stressors versus what are things that we are getting hooked or attached to that are really these hypothetical future events that aren't really out of our control? And how can we sit in our uncomfortableness and still continue to move in the direction of our values? So another um, aspect of this work that I, I like to orient people to is oftentimes when we are spending too much time in the past, it's correlated with symptoms of depression. And when we're spending too much time in the future, it tends to be correlated with symptoms of anxiety. Um, so now when I find myself getting caught up in these hypothetical future events, I'm able to notice this is my anxiety that's showing up for me right now. I'm spending too much time, time traveling into a hypothetical future event that hasn't happened yet. These events are out of my control. I can notice it, I can be aware of it, and I can identify in this particular context, what actions can I take that'll move me closer to my values, even in the presence of this uncomfortable feeling of the uncertain future. I love your phrase about being uh, sitting with your uncomfortableness. That's, uh, that's a Buddhist practice. So yeah, I endorse that heartily. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, on that note as well, with, with the ACT model, it's really broken down into teaching six core psychological skills. And four of those skills are these mindfulness practices that are heavily influenced by Buddhism and East, traditional Eastern practices. And then the other two of these six skills are values, clarification, and committed action, which are um, more rooted in American pragmatism and Western culture. So... Um, the ACT model is influenced by both Eastern traditions and Western traditions. And I think it's um, it's been using those Western traditions in the context of United States medical schools and United States healthcare systems that's allowed me to introduce these traditional Eastern practices to healthcare providers and to educators in a way that is a they are a little more open to coming into contact with. All right, Harshi, did you have something to add? Yes, I did. Um, I wanted to speak about, so I, I'm vision impaired and having the difference of what stress is to what the affects is to your disability per se, how do you kind of, uh, you know, to, to as you were talking about, to know your own self or your own feelings when you have your eye twitching, you understand that, you know, the stress levels or whatever is up. How does one kind of cope with knowing the difference of where they're at, especially with regards to like a vision disability? And how can one potentially change course of action to, let's say, uh, try something different? Or, you know, like, what is a, a starting point for someone that might have just lost their vision or someone that has already lost their vision from birth? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, like, where do they go from that point? Because it feels like it's almost like you're trying to interact with different uh, circumstances. So a good example I could give for that same blind person, let's just say they work in a call center, and their manager might have some feedback for them, but they feel that, hey, you know what, I'm just like, I'm doing all I can. I don't know why my manager is being so difficult with me. And so does that become a burnout or does that become stress of the job? Or how can one 
you know, try to understand that for yourself as that individual that is disabled, let's say, and then try to, you know, change that to kind of make it into recovery mode where they could take that bad and make it to good. Yeah. Um, so I think with these tools, first of all, thank you for sharing your perspective and the stressors that you come into contact with and others with vision impairment might be coming into contact with on a regular basis. Um, it seemed, I, I think what we could, there's ways to modify these present moment practices to help, um, one identify what are the what is the way that stress shows up uniquely in your body um and that that's why that's why I wanted to emphasize that as well as I might um have an eye twitch as a product of stress for me but a, a well-trained act therapist or act trainer would work with someone who has visual impairment and modify these exercises to identify um do you feel are there any particular symptoms of stress that you feel that maybe aren't related to eye twitching, but related to other parts of your body. And then when it comes to, um, you're saying for the example of working in a call center and your employer may be um, communicating to you about your performance, but it might be related to a disability that your disability could be a contributing factor to the outcome of that performance. It seems like it would be useful for that employer to um, practice these skills as well. Um, and one of these six skills from this ACT model is perspective taking. So the, abel the ability to metaphorically place yourself in another person's shoes and try to do your best to imagine if I were in this person's shoes, how would I be coming into contact with the world and what is not just just because I view a situation from this vantage point doesn't mean that the person that I'm working with is coming into contact with the exact same world or viewing things from that same vantage point. So I would encourage that employer to practice these skills as well and to particularly um, build their perspective taking and empathy skills to understand that there might need to be some environmental modifications made to your work environment to make it easier for you to produce at the same level as your colleagues, or that there may need to be more customized um, standards for that particular employee so that it, it, it does feel equitable and it does feel fair. Um, is, did I do an okay job with answering absolutely, your question? Absolutely. absolutely. Okay. It, it, because it, like I said, it, it gets confusing sometimes, right? Because there's different effects and effects and mm -hmm. different disabilities. So like, you know, someone that has anxiety is a disability technically, you know, PTSD, but then it might not be technically known as a disability, but it's debilitating. So, you know, just trying to get my clarifications here, but appreciate it. Thank you so much, Allison. Thank you. Awesome. Allison, can you lead us in an activity that we can do at home to help us become more mindful? And then we'll take our producer questions right after that. Yes, sure. So I have a whole list here of different activities I've been thinking about. And the, I might actually just build off of that question that we just talked about. Um, so I actually, I have two mindfulness exercises. The first one is, it's called the Notice Five Things exercise. And I'm gonna call it out right now, the very first prompt is a visual prompt. So as we go through this, um, 
once I'll go through the standard prompt, but then after you see the model, you can feel free to modify it in your day to day to best accommodate whichever sensory modalities uh, are work best for you for the exercise. And the point is not so much to get rigidly attached to being able to notice all of your sensory modalities, but really it's about practicing these small psychological reps to notice what's happening right here, right now in the present moment for you. Um, so we are gonna, so we're entering psychological gym right now. Um, we're gonna do some funny activities. And what I mean by psychological gym is if you were at the grocery store and you saw someone doing push-ups, what might you do? We're at the you're walking around the grocery store and someone's doing push-ups. What would what would happen for you? What would your response be? I'd lean over and whisper to my wife and point them out. You'd whisper to your wife, you'd give them <laughs> a, a look clap. at that person. <laughs> yeah, you'd look at that person. Someone told me they'd pull out their phone and post them on TikTok. So you you're walking around the grocery store, you see someone doing push-ups, you're probably gonna have a couple thoughts of like, this is weird. Why are they doing push-ups in the grocery store? But if you go to the gym. And now you're walking around the gym and you see someone doing push-ups. What would you do? Probably nothing or just that's where they do push-ups, right? They're working out. So. Yeah, you wouldn't really make, you wouldn't really think anything of it. You wouldn't really look at them or whisper in your friend or your partner's ear about it. Cause, and the reason that we do that is because the behavior is matching the context. So you see someone doing push-ups in the gym, that matches the context. You see someone doing push-ups in the grocery store, that doesn't match the context. And so as I guide you through these different exercises today, I want you to uh, metaphor to enter psycho the psychological gym with us. So some of these exercises are gonna feel like push-ups. Some of them might feel like doing bicep curls. Some of them might be compound exercises like a burpee. And just like going to the gym, some, of some people in this room, they're gonna love cardio. Some people are going to love strength training. Some people are going to love swimming. Not all of these exercises are going to be for everyone, but there might be one or two that you really, really like that you really, really prefer. So this first exercise that we're going to do in psychological gym, it's called the notice five things exercise. And it was originally developed to help individuals with anxiety, symptoms of anxiety. But um, again, everyone that I've met, if you're a human, you've also found yourself having moments of anxiety and moments of depression. Um, so we're going to build our present moment muscle right now. And I want you to start by what are five things in your environment that you can see right now? If you can just call them out or maybe on the screen, since we're all psychologically on the screen together, what are five things that you see on the screen right now? Books. We see books. Zoom. We see Zoom. What else do we see? Microphones. 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 Cameras yep. looking at me or looking back at the camera. The camera is looking. We're looking at it. It's looking back. What's one more thing that we can see right now? Curtains, drapes. Curtains and drapes. Yep. And then the next question that I'm going to ask you is what are four things that you can hear? Um, wh whether it's in your personal room or on, on the Zoom call, what are four things that you hear right now in your environment? My kids in the background. You hear your kids in the background. My wife walking upstairs. Your wife walking upstairs. My dog's playing. Your dog's playing. The and laptop just whispering away and uh, silence in the room. The whispering of the laptop, that humming. Um, okay, and then what are three things that you can touch right now? 
I have a cat right here, so I'm he's walking by. I can touch the cat. What the else? What keyboard? you can touch the microphone, touch the keyboard. What happens if you put your hands together? Can you touch the sensations of your hands right now? Does it feel warm or cold, clammy or or clean? Warm. Warm. And then what are um, two things that you can smell right now? Cologne. I have an Cologne. oil diffuser going. Oil diffuser, your dog. When I do this exercise with kids, I always ask them to go ahead and take a whiff of themselves. And they really find that funny and humorous. I've asked healthcare providers to do that as well, but it can be scary if you're at the end of the day asking someone to take a whiff. Um, so these are some these are some things that we can smell. And then what's one thing that you can taste right now? Coffee. Coffee. Did someone say success? Yes, because we're listening to you, and this is quite fun. So thank you. Oh, great, great. You can taste the success in your mouth. You can taste coffee, water, or maybe just the general taste of your saliva. Um, so that was it. That was the notice five things exercise. Everyone in this room just meditated. We just worked on our present moment muscles. So normally when I introduce these skills, I try to start with this exercise because it's so simple. And then that this exercise, if you can help people practice this exercise in this context, then you can invite them to practice it next time they have a meal. So my challenge for all of you today is next time you sit down and have a meal, try to practice the notice five things exercise. And again, if if um, seeing is a, an impairment or hearing is an impairment, go ahead and modify as needed. Um, you can also do this when going on a walk. So having, if I say have a mindful walk, it's really going out into the world, attempting to not look at your phone and just repeating the notice five things exercise. What do I see? What do I hear? What can I feel? What can I taste? What can I smell? And you just repeat these reps over and over. And that slowly builds these present moment muscles. Great. Thank you. Let's move into some of our questions from our producers. So producers, if you have additional questions, we've got quite a few on deck. What's our first question, Dave? It's from Guy Carkin in Seattle. Um, what is implicit bias? Allie? That's a great question. So um, we have, we've, as humans, um, we are conditioned to have bias. All of us have biases for or towards all different stimuli in our environment. Um, for the example, some of us have a positive bias towards vegetables. Some of us have a negative bias towards vegetables, and it's based off of our individual history of coming into contact with those stimuli. We are also a part of a larger culture and a, a social, uh, a cultural milieu um, where we have been socially conditioned to have biases for or and against um, stimuli like food, but also for and against different populations. And um, implicit bias is essentially these ingrained or deeply enriched biases that we've been socially and culturally conditioned to have towards or against or neutral to all the different stimuli in our environment. And one re um, reason that I'm so um, 
committed to studying burnout and what are best practices for managing our burnout in ourselves is there's a lot of emerging literature coming out that says that when we are under conditions of stress and burnout, we are more likely to respond to these um, deeply socially conditioned implicit biases about the world around us, rather than making mindful, conscious, value-based uh actions towards uh, the individuals that we come into contact with and the world around us. So they're they're more like they're kind of like these knee-jerk reactions that we have to different stimuli around us. It could be positive, it could be negative, it could be neutral. Interesting. You don't often think of positive biases. What's our next question, Dave? Our next one comes from Erin Graham, who's on the panel today and lives in Boston. She's asking, what are some self-help workbooks or books you recommend for both educators and non-educators? That's a great question. Um, so I think I referenced there was a study that came out that found uh, bibliotherapy, these self-help books to be effective with helping. Uh, the study was related to helping K through 12 educators with managing their symptoms of, of stress. Um, as well as anxiety and depression. And the book that they used in this study, what it's called Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life. And it was written by Dr. Stephen C. Hayes, who is a co-founder of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. So the book Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life, it's available on Amazon. I believe it was a it's a, been a bestseller in the past. It's really easy to find a copy of that. Another book that I would highly recommend is called The Happiness Trap. And The Happiness Trap was written by Dr. Russ Harris, who is also an expert in acceptance and commitment uh, therapy and training. And The Happiness Trap, there's it comes with um, a, a companion app called the ACT Companion, which is an app that you can download on your phone um, that goes along with The Happiness Trap. So those would be the two, if you're interested in diving more into this work, those would be the top two books that I would recommend to start coming into more contact with it. All right, Dave. Oh, I thought you were going to go first. Anyway, um, I found a book uh, by accident, actually, um, not feeling too good about the way things were going. I went to the library and sort of wandered around a bit and a book came off the shelf right in front of me and landed at my feet. And I looked through the shelf and there's nobody there. So I picked up this book and it was called The Wisdom of Insecurity. It's a very small book written by Alan W. Watts. And uh, it brought me totally out of a depression, uh, reorganized my life, and has been a guidance for me ever since. Great. And another interesting book that taught me a lot about what happens to your body when you're stressed, not a very hopeful book, is one called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And it's all about your stress response and what happens when you have long-term stress. What's our next question? Uh, Guy Cochran, again from Seattle, is asking, any mindfulness apps do you recommend? Allie? Yeah. Um, so I definitely recommend the ACT Companion. Um, I'm also a big fan of Insight Timer. The reason that I love the Insight Timer app is because it's free. Um, and there's a variety of different tones and also guided meditations. Headspace is a really great introductory. If you don't have experience with meditation or mindfulness practices in the past, Headspace is a really amazing app. Um, they also have uh, 
mindfulness for kids. So the Headspace app is great because you could be learning these skills and you can also, they also have little videos and guided meditations for kids. And they also have a television show on Netflix right now. So if you're like myself and you're a very uh, visual learner, then the, the television show and the little cartoons can be helpful with Headspace. There's also the Calm app that I would recommend. Um, but again, I, I honestly, I, I use the insight timer app. I've been using that one for years, um, especially because it's, it's free and there's a lot of great video content on that, on that, uh, app already. Awesome. And I'll try to get some links into the chat for those, uh, Aaron, what's your addition? So while this technically wouldn't be considered solely a mindfulness app, one that I started using in December, um, because a student recommended it to me was the app Finch. And it's similar to um, owning a Tamagotchi back in the 90s, where there's a little bird that you're trying to keep alive and healthy by setting goals for yourself. They can be mindfulness. They can be take, you know, breaths, doing doing the five, um, the five senses concept, drinking water, but also other goals that you're trying to um, achieve. So every time you achieve one of these goals, the little bird gets points and you're achieving your goals while playing a game. Awesome. Next question. It's from Chris Clark in Tempe, Arizona. Most people have an internal monologue going and sometimes it amplifies excessive self-criticism. How does your approach provide support for modulating this critical monologue? That's a great question. Um, yes, we all have this internal monologue going. And um, this is where, so with those, with these six skills of acceptance and commitment training or therapy, we talked about our present moment muscle. We talked a little bit about perspective taking. There's also values, clarification and committed action, which is knowing what's important to you and then doing what's important. And then there's two other skills referred to as acceptance, which is essentially that ability to allow yourself to experience that discomfort and diffusion, which is learning how to have a healthy sense of detachment between our thoughts, feelings, and emotions, and not responding to them as if they're the literal truth or the only perspective of the world. So with that question in particular, I would encourage that individual, when you notice that your internal dialogue is starting to become an obstacle and get in the way of you acting uh, in service of your values and engaging in committed actions towards your values to start to practice your acceptance and diffusion skills, which is essentially opening up to the discomfort. So there's a couple exercises. One is you could practice viewing your internal monologue as um, including all of these negative or uncomfortable thoughts, feelings, and emotions that are showing up for you as if they're inside of a beach ball floating on top of the water in a pool. Um, now, if you're in a pool and there's this beach ball that is full of every uncomfortable thought, feeling, and emotion that you've ever had, including those really cringy memories that you really hope no one uh, saw, but those, those thoughts are in the beach ball too, uh, you're going to feel pretty motivated to try to control the speech ball and to try to get it to go away. So you have a couple options when you're sitting in this pool with this beach ball full of this internal monologue. You could try to push the beach ball underneath the water. Um, but what happens when you try to push a beach ball underneath the water? 
bounces back up. It bounces back up. And the more energy and force that you use trying to control the beach ball to get it to go underneath the water, the more force and energy, uh, it just pops right back up at you. And when I do this exercise um, with others, sometimes they'll say, well, you know what, Allie, then I'm just going to try to throw the beach ball out of the water. But this is a magical metaphor that I'm making up right now. So we're going to imagine that there is um, this, there's like a a tarp or a bubble that's over the pool with you. So when you try to throw it out of the water, it just pops right back into the water. And then sometimes people will say, well, then I'm just going to find a sharp object and I'm going to try to deflate the beach ball. Again, this is a magical metaphor. So when you try to deflate the beach ball, what happens is it actually just grows back even bigger and it starts to take up more space in the pool. Um, so in this scenario, you have a couple options when you're in this body, when you're in this pool with this beach ball and um, that you're trying to get to go away. You can continue all day to try to get it to go underneath the water. You can try to throw it out of the water and have it pop back in. You can try to use these other control tactics by trying to get it to deflate and it just grows bigger and bigger. Or you can practice acceptance. You can practice allowing the beach ball to float on the water and be there with you. And when you start to move into the stance of acceptance that the beach ball is going to be there on the water floating with you, Suddenly, you now have this capacity to turn your attention to all the other interesting things that are happening in the pool with you that day. You can notice that your friends and your family and your loved ones are in the pool with you that day, and you can start to attend to them. You start to notice that wonderful contrasting sensation between the warm sun beating down on you and the cool pool water. Have We all know that experience that I'm describing. Um, so you, st you start to notice those wonderful sensations, the people in the pool, all the positive experiences. Maybe you notice a beach ball that's full of all your positive experiences are now in the water with you as well. So from this act perspective, when you find yourself getting caught up um, or hooked to your negative self-talk and that daunting internal monologue, one approach is acceptance, which is, can you open up to letting that beach ball sit on the water with you, to letting yourself come into contact with these uncomfortable thoughts, feelings, and emotions. And then the other skill is diffusion. Um, and with diffusion, this is having a healthy, it's essentially decontextualizing, deliteralizing our thoughts, feelings, and emotions. So they don't carry so much weight over us. Um, so for this next exercise, I'd like to invite everyone to take your hands and we're going to imagine that our hands now are our thoughts, feelings, and emotions. And I'd like you to place your hands in front of you like this and look around the room when your hands are this close to your face and notice everything you can see and everything that you can't see. And now I'd like you to slowly move your hands down to this position so and notice, are, are you covering yeah. your eyes, so to speak? Or yes. could you just kind of describe that to me a little? Yes. So I was I was covering um but placing my hands very closely to my face. So almost as if they're like touching my forehead and noticing, notice how physically close your hands are to your face when they're in that position. And then slowly moving your hands away from your head so that they're um about six to seven inches away from your head and they're not as close to to your head um and when there's this more there there's more distance and space between 
your thoughts, feelings, and emotions and, um, and yourself is what's happening. Now there's this room and we can notice all the other things that are happening in our environment when our hands are placed at a slightly more distant place from us. So that is just another metaphor for diffusion, which is essentially noticing that our thoughts are just thoughts and our feelings are just feelings and we can have these experiences without them having us. So the last exercise that I'd like us to do to um, highlight the impact of diffusion is I would like all of you to clap your hands and say out loud, I can't clap my hands. So I can't clap my hands. 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 hands. I can't clap clap my my hands. hands. Okay, so what is happening right there? We are telling ourselves that we can't engage in this behavior while we are simultaneously engaging in this behavior. Um, and that is really the power of diffusion as well as we we can have our negative self-talk. We can have this internal monologue that maybe tells us we can't do X, we can't do Y because I'm not blank enough or I'm too much blank, whatever shows up for you, we can have these things without them having us. Noticing that they're just thoughts, they're just feelings, they're a part of the beach ball, and the beach ball can float on the water with us while we continue to swim in the pool and notice all the other aspects of the world around us. Great activities. Uh, I clapped and my dog came over, so. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. He wanted to be present. Uh, What's our next question, Dave? It's from Paul Wallace in Cedar Creek, Texas, asking, what role does eliminating ambient noise via headphones or earbuds for sleeping play in your total sleep efficiency and recovery and well-being? That's a that's an interesting question. Um, I think that that might be a personal a personal choice. Well, um, I think it comes in a different modality uh, instead of alert and uh, attending, Mm -hmm. Uh, he's wondering if sleep has any factor in there. Okay. There is some, um, there is some literature that has found that sleep, the value of sleep hygiene. So um, it's found that when we are sleep deprived, we are more likely to have that negative internal dialogue pop up and deprivation and sleep has been correlated with self-injurious behavior um, as well as suicidal ideation. So sleep hygiene is a critical component to maintaining our well-being. Um, so if you if you do find yourself needing tools um, like headphones or sound canceling machines or those white noise machines to help you with your sleep hygiene, anything you can do. There's some other common practices as well, like removing blue light and screens about an hour or more prior to going to bed. Um, sleeping at a cooler temperature, I think it's a, somewhere between 65 and 68 degrees can be an optimal level for many for sleeping. But there's definitely literature that has found that when we are under conditions of sleep deprivation, we're more likely to be stressed, more likely to engage in self-harm and have a higher frequency of suicidal ideation. So it is a critical component. Just to help you out there, I'm translating for those elsewhere that it's about 18 to 20 degrees Celsius. Thanks, Dave. What's our next question? It's from Guy Cochran. What are three ways that we can improve our present moment muscle? 
we just did three activities. Ali, can you describe some others? I don't know if we have time to complete them, but are there any others that you would just suggest? Yeah, sure. There's um, box breathing is a great exercise. So this is where you essentially inhale for the count of four, and then you exhale for the count of four, and then you inhale for the count of four and exhale for the count of four. And you essentially imagine that you're drawing a box in your mind when you're doing that exercise. Um, getting grounded is another favorite one of mine. So I'd like to ask all of you um, to take a moment to place both feet on the ground in front of you. And then you can go ahead and close your eyes. If you don't feel comfortable closing your eyes, you can stare at a soft spot on the ground. Take a deep inhale, noticing the sensation of your breath. Slowly exhale, noticing that sensation as well. And now I'd like you to notice the way your right foot feels pressed on the ground. And now notice the way your left foot feels pressed into the ground. And then notice how both of your feet, the sensation of both of your feet being pressed in the ground, how that feels. Take another deep inhale and slowly exhale out. And whenever you're ready, you can open your eyes and come back to the room. And so that's a quick, I literally just call that exercise getting grounded. It's less than five minutes, just noticing the sensation of your feet pressed on the ground in front of you. This is an exercise, especially in telework and virtual settings that I've used in real time while I've been in meetings with others. I notice the my stress response. I notice I'm starting to feel a more uh, alert um, and I will literally place both feet on the ground, take a quick inhale and exhale, and then jump back into the meeting. I really like that last one. Uh, next question. This is from Paul Wallace in Cedar Creek. Can you stay inside in one place indoors all the time, which many did during COVID, and remain mentally healthy? Or uh, tips for staying healthy if you are homebound all the time? Yeah, um, this is a this is a really good question because I'm reflecting on my own experiences. Of, um, nature is nature. I think ha I just think personally, nature has a lot of um, innate healing properties to it. So, if there were ways to bring the experience of nature in your home by having plants, by having a little home garden that you can attend to. Um, ways that you can come into contact with those with those sensations of nature. Um, but also, we're just incredibly social creatures. I've been studying psychology for almost for a little over a decade now. And the more that I try to study the individual, the more I, I come to realize that we actually are, live in groups and we are more like the bees um, than we think we are. We really do need our social networks and social connection. Um, so the way ways that you could bring more social interaction with others, like a like this wonderful platform of having these conscious conversations with others on a screen, having a phone call with someone can go a long way. Um, any if you have opportunities to have physical touch, whether it's a hug from a loved one, um, the way more ways that you can weave in social interaction with whatever circumstances you're living in um, is going to greatly improve your health and well-being. And then ways that you could 
come into contact with nature, whether it's going out on a hike, if that's an option for you, but if that's not an option for you, if there's a way that you could bring more plants and um, gardening into your world, um, just to get you into contact with the earth would be uh, those. So finding ways to bring nature into your home and finding ways to bring social connections into your home would be the top two things I would recommend. What's our next question? This one comes from Keely Dunn in Calgary, Canada, and she's also on the panel with us. How can you build in methods or techniques to your system so you avoid taking on too much? That's a really great question as well. I feel like this comes down to um, learning how to practice having healthier boundaries, health, healthier boundaries with others and also healthier boundaries with yourself. Um, there's a wonderful therapist, right? Um, no, her name is Nedra Tawab, and she's written um, a couple books about boundaries. She just wrote a book called Drama Free that's about to come out. And prior to that, she wrote another book specifically about boundaries. It's a workbook about boundaries. And it talks about the distinction between having porous boundaries versus very rigid boundaries and how we can start to have better boundaries with ourselves and others. And I think as someone who is a recovering workaholic, it, the, the most difficult uh, aspect of this work is honoring the boundaries that you set for yourself. So when you say, I do not have the bandwidth or the capacity to do X, Y, and Z, can you hold space? Can you let the beach ball sit on the water with you when the thoughts start to come up that maybe you should move your boundaries to accommodate others? Can you practice having those thoughts without them having you and still honoring your boundaries to maintain um, your own well-being? Quote of the day, have your thoughts without them having you. What's our next question? It's from TJ Asher in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Does intense physical activity such as exercise contribute to recovery? And if so, how and why? Yes, there's also a lot of literature. So sleep, a healthy diet, good nutrition, physical exercise. Um, those are seen as hydration. These are seen as foundational to, to helping maintain our well-being. Um, so, and with the word, I'm, I'm personally having my own relationship with the word recovery right now, because I view this work as it's where there's, I don't really know if healing, if we, anyone ever truly reaches a, reaches a state of completely healed or completely recovered. To me, it seems like it's this lifelong, never-ending journey towards recovery, towards healing, towards well-being, and towards health. So um, I could say, you know, make sure tomorrow that you get a full eight hours of sleep, you have an adequate amount of exercise, you have the perfect diet, but that's just tomorrow. It's really this lifelong path towards um, towards well maintaining your well-being. Go ahead, Dave. Would you be concerned about intense physical activity actually adding stress and um, not relieving burnout? I think so. I think this is um, 
from the act perspective, everything comes down to the context in which our, we're behaving. So a lot of times, if you ever see an act therapist or you work with an act trainer, they might ask you the question, and how's that working out for you? Because the indication of, of well-being is successful working for the individual. So again, even this one, it's kind of context dependent and individual dependent, what might be considered intense uh, work, intense exercise for one individual might not be considered intense exercise for another. Um, and it really comes down to why are you engaging in that exercise? Are you engaging in it solely with the agenda to try to decrease having the presence of uncomfortable thoughts, feelings, and emotions. Because if you're doing it solely with the mission to try to decrease these experiences from an act perspective, it would be viewed, that would be viewed as a, a form of experiential avoidance um, or really a band-aid rather than addressing the core issue of whatever's showing up for you. But if you're engaging in intense exercise because you made a value-based commitment to be a part of a relay race with your friends in the summer, so you're engaging in this intense exercise to help you come further in alignment with your own values, then it would be viewed as an instance of self-care. Um, so I, when I was working with medical students, a good example of this is um, medical students are incredibly healthy. They're the ones who they a lot of, they are valuing their sleep, their nutrition, their exercise um, as much as they possibly can. And there was always this interesting thing that would happen right around the time of their final exams, where suddenly some of these people that I would be working with, they would tell me, Allie, I have to go to the gym for three hours today. And it was always their The frequency of exercise was always increasing as they got closer around this time where they should be sitting at a desk studying for their exam. Suddenly, they absolutely had to be at the gym for three hours a day every single day the week of their exam. Um, so in that context, I had to help explain to them that that's really experiential avoidance in disguise. They're engaging in the exercise to avoid what um, they have self-reported to be important to them, which is their education in that moment. They're avoiding sitting down and doing the studying that needs to be done in service of their education through the means of going to the gym um, an extreme amount that week. But so again, it really is context dependent. Sometimes intense exercise is a value-based action. That is, if you're an Olympic athlete and you have a competition coming up, then yes, doing that exercise is in service of your values. But if you're doing it because it's with the sole agenda of trying to get the beach ball to go away, um, then I might encourage you to open up to letting that beach ball sit there with you. Great. Next question. From Paul Walthus in Cedar Creek. One of our panelists who is not on board today said, it is not polite to stare at the past. How do you divert your attention away from dwelling on past mistakes? Yeah, that's a really good one. Um, and this goes back to that notion of when we are spending too much time in the past, it can be correlated with symptoms of depression, too much time in the future correlated with symptoms of anxiety. Um, and again, this also kind of comes down to the context because it is good. This is why I'm saying <clears throat> too much, which is also dependent on the, individ in, on the individual. 
it is good under certain contexts and situations to sit back and reflect on the past. Uh, it can be okay to have a moment where you want to, you know, reflect on a really sweet memory of yours. And you just kind of want to have that moment where you're where you're thinking about that sweet memory, or you are thinking about a past mistake, and you're using that reflection about the past to identify how you want to improve moving forward. And it is okay um, to visualize our futures, um, to identify what is the direction that we're heading, what do we want our ideal future state to be for ourselves. So I'm not saying we have to be in, in the present moment all the time. It's okay to have some healthy self-reflection on past and to visualization about the future. Um, but when you do find yourself ruminating about past events, uh, like this question asked, which I'm every one of us has come into contact with, um, this is why the more that you can build your present moment muscle on a day-to-day -day basis, the sharper you're gonna get at noticing when it's too much the sharper and faster and more agile you'll become at noticing when you're in the depression lull, when you've psychologically transferred to the past and now it's getting in the way of you being in the present and doing what's important to you right now. So if you have, if like on your schedule, you're like, I have nothing to do today. I don't have any responsibilities until tomorrow. I'm gonna let my mind wander in whatever direction it takes me. It's not getting in the way of my quality of life then by all means, go and have your psychological time traveling. But if you have a bunch of appointments on your day-to-day, -day, if you're saying, oh, I can't go to that important event because I am I need like five more hours to ruminate about something that happened five years ago, then that would be a cue to download that meditation app and start building your present moment muscles. And the the thing with our present, the another reason why I refer to this as present moment muscle building um, is just because we did the notice five things exercise today, this morning, um, doesn't necessarily mean you've built that muscle. If you do um, sit-ups one time, you're not going to have a six pack. You have to do sit-ups every single day and maybe some other exercises as well and change your diet to ultimately get a six pack. And then if you suddenly you get the six pack and then you stop doing the sit-ups, well, the six packs, the muscles are going to go away. So it's really this, the more that you can integrate daily, a daily meditation practice, a daily mindful practice, it's going to build those muscles to make it um, even to make you even more agile to just noticing when you've time traveled to the past and then noticing what actions can you take in the, in the current moment when you've gone to the psychological past that are going to move you closer towards your values in that moment. Great. And our last question was about um, how to help K through five kids from Aaron. But Aaron, what I will say is we have a different guest coming in two or three weeks. Georgia Dow is a clinical therapist and she'll be here and we'll talk more specifically about student mental health when she comes and visits. So looking forward to that. Thank you so much for joining us today, Allison. I always appreciate how you blend theory, evidence-based practice and actionable items. Uh, the feed on the floor activity in particular is always especially helpful to me personally. I hope each of our panelists and viewers found one practice that they can continue to learn from as well. Special thanks to all of our vol volunteer and back-end crew who keep things running. They manage our questions, cut our cameras, check our microphones, and coordinate the show. Our expert panelists graciously volunteer their time to help us all learn something new, so thank you for the gift of your time today. 
And finally, our producers who drive the show by posting questions and interacting in the chat. We couldn't have a show without you. Special thanks to uh, Peter Belvin, who's scheduled to be TDN training today. Thanks so much. If any of our viewers would be interested in volunteering, we'd be happy to train you too. Make sure you sign up for our daily email in officehours.global, which has a link to a volunteer form. It has upcoming topics, as well as a list of community events and labs where we, where we dig deeper. Each day of office hours takes about 20 volunteers, which for a two-hour show is equivalent to one FTE. Uh, that's a whole lot of bananas uh, per week of consumption. Speaking of bananas, our Tlaloc traversal is, let me pull it up here. Are your questions, but the distance between each question today was 58,346 miles, which is equivalent to 528 million bananas stacked end to end, which would feed those volunteers uh, for many, many years. Thank you all for our show today. I encourage you to stay through our credits so you can see all the effort involved in the show, and we'll see you again next week. Thanks so much, Allison. Really appreciate you coming in. That was terrific, yes. We well brilliant. done, guys. Thanks very much, Allison. Yeah. Enjoyed it. This is our whisper time. Is ASMR considered stress relief? I hope so. <laughs> Thanks, Arshid, for uh, helping yes. us be mindful of your needs, because I've oh, never thought about those activities before. No, but I was wondering that that's exactly how we do it. We just ask. You know, If you don't ask, you're not going to get it. <laughs> Wonderful job. So helpful for people who are listening remotely and not watching to be able to hear what we were doing as exercises. So excellent reminder for everybody. It might have been the Macarena, but it wasn't the Macarena. <laughs> have a great day. Anyone who wants to join our education council meeting, it will be in about five or ten minutes after the show to debrief. Thanks, Allison. We'll see you soon. Sounds good. See you later.